This morning we're going to ponder a question, and one question that we'll see within our passage, and that question is, why me? Why me? Usually, um, or a lot of times, we find ourselves asking that question when things go bad. We ask, why, why me? Why is it that the IRS picked me to audit? Or why did the, the boss decide to lay me off? Or why did, why did he decide to target and harass me? A lot of other times, we ask that question within the context of comparing ourselves with someone else. Uh, why did I get the sword in the stick and not AJ? <laughs> or why, why did my furnace go out? Why did my um, sump pump go out? Why did my car break down when it never happens to so-and-so? Why do I get sick and not this person? We ask a lot, why me? Another time that we, we hear this often is from the mouth of a returning soldier. He'll ask, why me? Why did I survive when my buddy did not? And that is in more in line with how we're going to ask that question. Why me? Why did God save me? Why did God choose me to save so if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, where Seth was able to read for us here. Um, if you haven't been with us, let me, let me quickly catch you up, or just as a reminder for all of us. So in the beginning, the first four verses, we saw Luke lay down, pretty much telling us what he's doing. He is collecting eyewitness accounts about the, the life, the person, and the work of Christ, and they're reliable and he tells us his purpose is to assure or reassure or, or to give assurance to his readers. And then we saw an angel, Gabriel, announced the conception of John the Baptist to Zechariah, his, his father. And John the Baptist being the front row of the Messiah. And then we saw right after that, very similar, Gabriel comes to Mary, a possibly 12, 13-year-old woman in Nazareth comes to her and announces a virgin conception of Jesus, the coming Messiah King. And if you miss any of those, those messages are online, whether our website, the podcast, or YouTube. But this morning in our passage that Seth read here, we will see that question, why me? It arises as Mary, as these, these two stories, if you will, that we've been reading about uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and then Mary and, and Joseph, and they collide here. We saw about John the Baptist, saw about Jesus, and now they collide as Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And we'll see that question throughout this. Why me? And we're going to break it down in three parts. Or Luke breaks it down. We'll see this. Number one is the setting. Luke will set up the setting for, for what happens here. And then number two, out of the mouth of Elizabeth, we have this question. Why me? And then the third part we'll see is that Mary answers that question because she herself as we will see she's been pondering that question as well why me these two ladies that uh uh, uh god aided conception one with elizabeth and then a miraculous conception for mary they ask why me and it's far deeper than that but we'll see that so setting then the question why me and then the answer from mary so here we go if you have your bibles get ready so the first part is the setting. Verse 39, Luke writes, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, 
and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So in those days is at the time when Gabriel visited her, and it says that she arose, being married, and she went with haste to the hill country. And when I read that, I was like, why is she running? And then I was like, okay. So Gabriel, an angel, literally talked to her, and not only about her own conception, but about her relative Elizabeth, who has been barren her whole life, is well beyond the years of, of conceiving, now has conceived. And so Mary, okay, she takes off, she runs, because she wants to see this, to see the, this, this, what's going on, but also to rejoice with Elizabeth. So she heads off, and it says, into the hill country, to a town of Judah. And so what we, we gather here, um, just to give a little context of what's going on here. Um, so Mary, she, Gabriel went to Mary at Nazareth. She's going to the hill country, which would be around Jerusalem in Judah, which is about 80 to 100 miles. So she's got a three to four day trip ahead of her. But she goes with haste. And it says she goes to enter the house of Zechariah and greet Elizabeth. Um, another thing that I was thinking is that Elizabeth may be the only person who would believe Mary, that she's conceiving uh, as a virgin. Um, we see in, by Matthew that Joseph didn't even believe her, that he was planning on divorcing her quietly. And so Elizabeth, being herself conceiving miraculously, she might be the only one to believe Mary. So she runs and says she greeted Elizabeth. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this greeting. Let me set this up here. So in our day, we're probably used to, uh, whether in our own church or if you see each other in Walmart, like, hey, hey how you doing? Yup, yup. And it, we're kind of moving on. And I'm sure all of us would agree. Um we were just talking earlier about in Chicago, it might be a lot different. You don't greet people at all. You just walk by. But here at this time, the greeting was far more extensive and it was a lot more structured. So they start greeting each other. And then while they're greeting each other, it says that the baby leaped in her being Elizabeth, her womb. And this being John the Baptist. Many of us are married to have kids or many of us are uncles and, and aunts of kids. Or we have friends who have kids. And we've seen and felt the baby moving in our wife's womb, in our, our nieces, our sisters, whatever. We felt them moving. We know what normal movement is. I remember uh, when Casey was pregnant, and this was further along when, when Sawyer was pregnant, or when Casey was pregnant with Sawyer, and you could literally see like his, his limbs, I know we can all think of, just stretch and move. It makes you think of those alien movies when they're coming out. And it's like, what is going on? So this movement that Elizabeth, she repeats later, I think in verse 43, um, John leaped. And at first, just because I know what Casey kind of complained about when Sawyer was moving was poor Elizabeth's bladder and ribs. And I'm sure the lady's like, yep, if your baby leaped in your womb. So this was not normal whatsoever. It was not a normal movement. And so the baby leaped and it said that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we see that word, that, that phrase, filled the Holy Spirit, it means the power of the Holy Spirit controlling a person, whether it be uh, for service to God in word or in, in action or in work. We see this in the Old Testament uh, when they're building the tabernacle. The workers, the craftsmen who are making the wood, who are making the, the metals and are, are even braiding things, it said that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Many times in the New Testament, 
it's recorded that people, the, the apostles we see, the different disciples, are, are filled with the Spirit, like we see with Peter. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he speaks a word from the Spirit uh, in those situations. And so we see this setup that Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and she's going to say something great. Uh, here we go. So she says, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. I want to stop there for a second. Remember, this is the context. They're greeting each other. And it's a common thing, and it's a little more extensive than our greeting. And so they're probably saying hi and saying where they're coming from or what they've been doing, whatever. Probably in a common, common sound level. And then it said that Elizabeth exclaimed in a loud voice. And can you? I can't even imagine them talking kind of normally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pregnant now. Blah blah blah. And then Elizabeth just starts hollering. And so obviously this kind of sets it off like, okay, something's different is going on here. And so she exclaims with a loud voice, picking up verse 42. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If you remember when we were talking about Elizabeth with her being barren, that there was a, a, a very strong stigma with being barren. Usually it's a very negative stigma. Stigma. Um, as if a curse from God. And we saw with Elizabeth, that was clearly not the case, that she was righteous before God. But that was very strong in the Hebrew culture. And so in that Hebrew culture, a woman's status was greatly based on her children. Uh, this is evident, uh, if you remember, in Luke 11, there's a woman that cries out to Jesus, blessed is the, the woman that carried you, Blessed is the breast of the one that you drink from. And so there's, the woman is tied to the status of her kids. And so we see Elizabeth cry out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's talking about Jesus. Mary is blessed because of who she's carrying. She's carrying the Messiah. Elizabeth is thrilled for Mary that she is the one chosen to carry for nine months the Messiah, the God King, the God Man. And I want to take a second in that phrase, blessed are you among women. Consider Mary. She has a virgin conception. Her fiancé, if you will, we talked about what it meant at that time, was considering to divorce her quietly because it seemed that she has been immoral during their engagement. She was seen by everyone else as if she got pregnant out of wedlock. If we remember at Jesus' birth, they're in Bethlehem, which during the census they had to go back to the hometown. So Joseph went back to his hometown, assuming there's plenty of his family there, and they still could not find a place to stay. So most likely, there's a stigma with Mary that none of Joseph's family wanted anything to do with her. And this followed Mary for her whole life. As if you can see through the different Gospels, the different accounts, that Jesus, especially the Pharisees, they always ask, oh, here's, here's Jesus, the, the son of Mary, which they would, he would be referred to as the son of Joseph. But because, well, we don't really know. Uh, who knows? Is that really the son of Joseph? And so they're playing on this. Well, she was immoral, or was she? And so this has been following her whole life. And then at the end, she watches her son pu- publicly tortured and executed in possibly the most horrific way in all of history, the crucifixion. And yet she is called blessed among women. Through all that, even in light of this rough life that she has had and she's going to have, she's called blessed among women. Why? We'll see that. We'll see what she says, verse 46 and 55. But before we get there, we see again that that second phrase, blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
in this. This is a, a Hebrew idiom, basically a blessing on the kid, on Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah, the seed of Eve, who would crush the serpent's head in the garden, the suffering servant Isaiah who would bear our sin and our iniquity, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the King who returned. This is who is in the womb of this 12, 13-year-old woman, Mary. We get a picture of our salvation again in Mary. We said that um, two weeks ago. That Mary is like a picture of our salvation because Elizabeth is proclaiming a blessing on Mary. It has nothing to do with Mary. It has to do with the child. In the same way, our blessing has nothing to do with us. It has to do with Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. So that's the setting. That's how Luke sets this up. And then we come to our question that Elizabeth asks, why me? And we see that right in verse 43. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? There's the question, why me? It's not just a question of geography, like, hey, why has she come? But it's far deeper. Why should the Lord come to me? And she says, mother of my Lord. And the emphasis is not on Mary, it's on Jesus, on the Messiah, on the Lord. Elizabeth she knows that Mary's in the same boat as she is. She's broken. That she's sinful. And so she's not questioning, why is Mary coming? But why is my Lord coming to me? And that's the question we ask. Why has the Lord, why has salvation, why has Jesus saved me? Why has God chosen me? Why has Jesus come to Elizabeth? Why has she come to Mary? Or why has he come to even Theophilus? Why has he come to us? It's a question of the grace of God. Why does it come to us when we don't deserve it? A question of amazement, of joy, of wonder. Especially in light when we look, think about our past. I'm sure we've got many stories of people hurting us, of what people have done to us. And I'm sure we've got many stories of what we've done to other people. The evil intentions of our heart, the pain we've caused people, and yet God has shown grace. Why? Why me? And Elizabeth continues expressing this amazement and this joy. Verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And again, we, we, she emphasizes again. John the Baptist leaped. It wasn't normal. I'm probably in pain. I have to go to the bathroom. But he leaped for joy. Throughout all the Gospels, specifically in John, um, John the Baptist is clearly seen as the one that testifies about Jesus, that witnesses to Jesus. And we see that even in the womb, John has already started this. Maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, whatever you want to say, but he's filled with the Spirit, which we are told, Gabriel said, and he witnesses to the majesty, to the glory of Christ by leaping when Jesus comes close, even in the womb. And this is a clear opposition to abortion right away. These are people in the womb and he's leaping for joy while Jesus comes close even in the womb and with joy it says why because the Savior has come the one to make everything right the Messiah King has come she ends verse 45 and blessed is she who believed 
that there would be fulfillment of what has spoken to her from the Lord. And again, we see this uh, picture of our salvation in Mary. She believed. Her response was belief. Just as our response should be faith and trust in God's act. So we saw the setting, and now we just saw the question. Elizabeth articulated this question of why me? Far more than just geography, but far deeper. Why has the Lord come to me? If you remember and recall, or if you have your Bible, turn back to verse 29 of chapter 1. When Gabriel came to Mary, he had a very gracious greeting. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then verse 29, it says, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And we talked about that. She knew, uh, she, she was humble. She knew her state, her sinful state. Why? She was wondering, why is the angel calling me, oh, favored one? What is this even about? And so Mary's been pondering this. Why me? Which on a practical level in this account seems very practical. Why, why has God shown grace to this woman that it's her that was picked out, that Jesus, the God-man, would come. And so she's been asking, why me? Elizabeth asked it, why has the Lord come to me? Mary asked it, why me? We ask it, why me? So Mary answers it. Here in verse 46 to the end of this section, she answers, why me? This is called, or some might be familiar, Mary's Minificant is what it's called. And the reason it's called that is because of the Latin translation, the first word, Minificant, that's why it's called that. It's a song of praise and worship. That's why uh, in your, your Bible, the editor probably has it uh, marked differently than before. It kind of looks like the Psalms, how it's broken down like that. That's because it's kind of poetic. It's a different kind of form, different kind of grammar. And so she answers the question, why me? And this is what I want us to see throughout this. God's choice, God's mercy, God's salvation, God's grace, God's initiation, God's actions. We'll see that all throughout this. The the answer to the question, why me? God's choice, God's mercy, God's salvation, God's grace, God's initiation, God's actions. And so we go in. Mary's answer to the question, why me? Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Possibly an echo from Psalm 34, which reads, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble here be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt her whole, his, exalt his name together. She says, her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I'll be honest, when I read this, I asked myself this. What prevents my soul from magnifying the Lord? Often. What prevents my spirit from rejoicing in the Lord? Often. And maybe you might be in the same boat. Why is it? What prevents me from from magnifying the Lord like Mary says she is? What stops me from rejoicing in the Lord? Let me give you a suggestion. This is just my thoughts. Maybe the biggest reason that prevents us from this magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord 
is because we struggle to believe the full grace that we have in God. We struggle to believe the finished work he has done. We struggle to believe that this day, literally this day, this morning, as you're sitting in your couch, wherever you're at, that this day we are declared righteous through faith in Christ. We are completely right, seen as completely obedient because of Christ. We struggle to believe that God is for us and not against us in these many different situations. We struggle to believe that we have really been forgiven of that sin that just seems to always creep into our minds. Maybe when we're super excited about something and we're rejoicing, but there's always that kind of sin that creeps in that just kind of don't get too happy. Don't forget about this. It kind of pulls us back into that jail cell. We forget that that's been forgiven. We forget that right now, today, how God views you is completely independent of your performance. I don't think the question of why me will ever lead to this worship and enjoyment of God unless two things. Number one, that we truly marvel the question why me in the full context of our complete and utter inability and worthlessness or unworthiness. If we deep down have a seat of entitlement that says, it'd be wrong if God didn't save me. It's good that God did save me. If we have that, then we are forgetting the truth that we are completely deserving of punishment. If we don't have that context while we ask the question, why me? I don't think we'll ever have this full-blown magnifying the Lord, this rejoicing in the Lord. And the second thing that prevents us that we'll never have that kind of enjoyment in God is if we never abide in Christ and His completed work. If we do not understand nor believe the full extent of Christ's finished work, how can we marvel if we don't believe that every single sin has been forgiven? How can we marvel and rejoice if we always feel like we're working for that A from God instead of working from that A from God? Why me? And Mary points to this, uh, this, this view of God as Savior. She says, my God, my Savior. If you've repented and trusted in Christ, God is your Savior. He has saved you. Her soul can magnify the Lord. She can rejoice in God because of her salvation in Him. And she kind of puts this salvation in a picture. She says, He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. He's looked upon our brokenness. I kind of, when I read that, I got this picture of a, a cliff. And this picture of God looking over the cliff. And he sees us hanging by a thread. He sees us getting tired, unable to pull ourselves up, and our, our grips is getting weak and weaker, and we're looking down into the abyss, and we know the reality of falling in there is getting closer and closer. And God looks over, he looks at the humble state of a servant, and he acts and he reaches down. And look how she just describes this. He has looked upon the humble state of his servant. This is the second time she's used this. She called herself servant in verse 38. Uh, another, your Bible might translate slave. Same thing. Interesting thing is, this is the first time it comes up, and in the rest of the New Testament, 
a bunch uh, of people who wrote the, the Bible, Jude, they referred to themselves as the servant of the Lord. Paul refers to himself as the slave of the Lord. The same view of who God is and who we are. We forget that we deserve punishment. We get so accustomed to things going right. And this, I'm speaking about myself huge. I get so accustomed to, to the blessing of God that we forget that we don't deserve this. I deserve justice. I deserve fairness, which is death and punishment for my sin and my rebellion towards God. Yet God favors me because of Christ. And this is why we ask the question, why me? Mary continues, uh, the end of verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And this isn't an arrogant statement or some kind of pompous attitude. Uh, she's already told how where she's come from, this lowest state of her servant. Um, it's just It's more of a glorification of God. I'll be called blessed because of what he's done. Nothing of myself. I'm blessed, not because of anything of me, but because of what God has done. I'll be called blessed for generations because of what God has done. And she says, she even said, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We see here, again, this repeated it has nothing to do with Mary. It has nothing to do with Elizabeth. It's because of what God has done. He has done mighty great things for me. Again, there's so many echoes of the Psalms in this. Uh, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I think of the end of the Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure if you guys watched it at all. Anyway, maybe someone else at home has watched the, the movies The Lord of the Rings or read the books. I've seen the movies. Uh, long movies, right? But at the end, at the end of this nine-hour journey of the movies, or however long they are, where there's just been... Incredible war, battles, all that kind of stuff. At the very end, we get this picture where uh, Frodo like wakes up, right? If you remember the scene, it's kind of, I don't know, it seems almost heavenly because it's a very bright, as compared to different parts of the movie, it's very bright. It's this kind of, um, this music. But as we see, Frodo wakes up, and then one after one, uh, his buddies that he went to war with or on this, this quest comes in one by one, and they're just super excited. They're jumping down. They're laughing. They're just having a great time because it's over. It's done. The long journey is over. They've destroyed the ring. It's all been finished. All is fine. All things that were wrong are coming undone. It's done. And that's exactly what we can do because it is done. Jesus has finished it. We can be just like them. We can rejoice. We can laugh. We can jump up and down because it has nothing to do with us. Jesus has finished it. Our sins are cast as far as the east as from the west. They're forgiven. It is finished. We can have jump and excitement because the ring is gone. We are saved. And it, that is it. That is done. And so that's where we get this picture from. He's done great things. It is done. He has finished it. It was all of him, not of me. And we can rejoice. And she says at the end, and holy is his name. 
Holy, it means transcendent, set apart. He's not like us. There's us, and then there's God. Nothing can compare to him. We're just, we can't even comprehend. He's transcendent. He's far above. As Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So we see God is holy, transcendent. He's above. He's far above. He reigns. I'm going to read about 10 verses from Psalm 111. And the reason I do is because it seems a lot of things that Mary brings up here grab from Psalm 111. Things we've already seen that she said, but things she will also say. Listen to this. I think it's very fitting. It reads this. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and given them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so the psalm just extols what God has done. His grace, his mercy, and praising him for it. And we've heard some of the language in that psalm already by what Mary has said. And we'll hear some of those as we continue in Mary's uh, her song here. Verse 50 She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy. Your your Bible may have translated that differently. Uh, Steadfast uh, love, which is usually what's translated in the Old Testament. This covenantal faithfulness. He is faithful to his people. He will not let them go. He will not forsake them. And listen how this transitions in Mary. She's talking about how she's blessed and how thankful she is. And then she she turns it to everyone. It's not for her alone. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So, okay, what does fearing him mean, right? You could say that's a deep, reverent regard for who God is in his will. Or, or maybe a better way is anyone who acknowledges God's position and authority. Those who fear God are those who acknowledge his position and authority. In short, believers. They acknowledge who God is. That that, he is the king. He is the creator. And we have to answer to him. And then they respond. And only the reasonable response there is, is repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. But this mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then Mary continues in 51 verse 53. And listen to this. Because we see here, she just said, holy is God. He's far above. He's transcendent. And then verses 51 through 53, he comes near. 
we see that this is not just a, a, a out there type of thing, a, a deism where, yep, God was here, he wung up the clock, and then he left. Nope. God is not only transcendent, but he's near. He steps in. And we see this, verse 51, 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud to the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He steps in. He's not indifferent. He steps in. And you might be uh, noticing here, uh, and I assume all of our translations, it's all past tense, right? He has shown strength. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent away. It's all past tense. And here, let, me see, let me say two things here. One, Mary, no doubt, is thinking about what God has done. And we'll see that as we go through this. But let me submit to you that this is also talking about the future of what God will do. But it is so certain she can speak about it as if it's already been accomplished. Let me say it again. She's talking about past things, no doubt. She's looking at past things, and we'll look at that. But let me say again that she says and speaks things about God that he will do in the future, that he will continue to do, but it is so certain that she can talk about it as if it's in the past, that it's already accomplished. Let's look at this. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. This is language that is used referring to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, twice. It's talked about Jesus, uh, God showing his arm, the strength of his arm. God literally taking slaves from the, the world's superpower at that time, Egypt, taking them from the superpower, and then as the, the greatest army at that time comes after them, God destroys them. The strength of his arm. And then as we read these next verses, we see this contrast. The proud the mighty, the rich versus the humble, the hungry. Those who are open and responsive versus those who tend to be more dependent on themselves, who tend to not look to anyone else for help. And it's not that God is saying there's anything wrong being rich. That's not all. But what we see here, and we see it with, with things that the New Testament says, is that sometimes our social circumstances does affect our heart in the sense of how sensitive and open we are to God. And that's why he uses these examples of the proud, the rich, uh, um, the, the mighty. But look through this. Here you go. So that first thing, he, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Uh, she possibly thinks of Pharaoh, back to the Exodus. Pharaoh said this, Exodus 5, he said this, Who's the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will let Israel go. And we laugh at that, because we know exactly what happened. The guy's place got absolutely slaughtered. Ten plagues, the, the army's gone. In Psalm 37, it, uh, the psalmist writes, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. She may be thinking of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the word that we have fun saying, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel writes this about Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And if you remember the account, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think he was on his roof. He's looking at his kingdom. Everything that he has, everything he's ruling over. And, and the, the scripture gives this impression that I've done this, he says. 
this is all by my power and my might that I did this. And then it says, the scripture says that God spoke and Nebuchadnezzar went insane, literally went insane. If you remember, he went around, he was eating grass like a horse. His nails and his hair was unkept. He was a complete mess. And then when God gave his sanity back, Nebuchadnezzar said this, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. God scatters the proud. God is not mocked. He'll let people mock him for decades, but in the end, God is not mocked. Mary says that he brought down the mighty from their thrones. And we get this picture again that God reigns. He might, she might be thinking of, uh, of Babylon or, or, or even the Romans at that time. She might be thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. She might be thinking of Pharaoh. There's all of this, but God reigns. She says he, he exalted those of humble state. Again, Israel, this, this nameless, this not powerful, not significant group, he exalted. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things. Psalm 107, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God cares for his children. And then finishing up with her response, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And so we, still, we continue to get this bigger picture. It's not just Mary who's being blessed, but it's for those who fear him, Israel, his people. And, and I want us to key in on this, and this kind of brings this together. He says, he helped his servant Israel. Why? In remembrance of his mercy. Don't forget the promises that he spoke to Abraham and his offspring forever. His mercy, his steadfast love. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and 9, probably, I don't know, I keep on going back to it in the Old Testament. So if you remember, the Israelites get through the wilderness, right? And they get to the edge of the promised land. They're at the Jordan River. Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land and start taking it over. Moses, before they go over, he gives them one last speech. And that's what Deuteronomy is. This last speech to people of God before they go over. Because Moses ain't going over. He's going to die. So he gives this talk in Deuteronomy 8, chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and 9. He says this. He calls them to be careful. He says, you go over there. You will be fed well. He says, your barns will be full. Your bank account will be full. Things will be good. You'll have houses that you did not build. Things will be very good. He says, when that happens, be careful. You do not forget God. And then he says this, God through Moses, he says, do not think, and it seems like he repeats it, do not think whatsoever that God is doing this because of your righteousness. Do not think that, Israel. And then God through Moses lists why he shouldn't do this for them. He says, do you remember Mount Sinai? Do you remember the golden calf? I should not let you in the promised land because of that. Do you remember Kadesh Barnea? When I told you to go in, you refused to go into the land. That's why you shouldn't go into the promised land. He says, do you remember all that rebellion and their stubbornness in the wilderness? That's why you shouldn't go into the promised land. Then he says, yet God is going to do this for you. Not because of your righteousness, but because of his mercy. And that question comes to us. Why me? 
And I'm certain for each one of us, God could do the same thing. He could list the reasons why he shouldn't save you. Do you remember this, Alex? That's why I shouldn't save you. Do you remember doing this at age 17? That's why I shouldn't save you. Do you remember this? That's why I shouldn't save you. And yet he shows grace. He shows mercy. Not because of my righteousness, not because of yours, but because of his grace, because of his mercy. So why me? Why me? It's what Elizabeth asks when the Lord comes. It's what Mary asks when Gabriel said, Oh, favored one. And it's what we ask. Why me? Why has God chosen me? Let me read a passage to you from Romans 9. This is Paul. Um, He writes this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy in whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he has mercy, so then he has mercy on whomever he, whomever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he, whomever he wills. So the question of why me? After everything I've done, why does God save me? The answer, it was not because of me. It's because of God's grace. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his gracious choice. And in that, we can magnify God. Our soul, our spirit can rejoice in God, as, as Mary says. Verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Three months, uh, Elizabeth was pregnant six months here. She's about to give birth. Mary heads home. And that leads us to, to John the Baptist's birth, which we'll see, God willing, in two weeks, because next week, Keith will be preaching, which I'm pumped for. Keith, if you're watching, I'm super excited. Um, so why me? Let me just finish this here. Why me? When something bad happens, we ask, why me? We should ask, when something good happens, why me? Why does God do this for me, a sinner, one who has rebelled against him? But praise God, because he's gracious and he's merciful. For all those who, who repent and trust in him. Please pray with me. God, Lord, forgive us for our pride, for our arrogance, that we don't even see sometimes our attitude as just that. Lord, forgive us of our sin. And God, give us just a, a clear, just a clear thought of your, your, your finished work. We are forgiven. Through faith in your Son, we are completely forgiven. What we've done yesterday what we may currently be in, 
and what we may do in Christ, we are forgiven. Lord, give us this this freedom that you've already given us, but give us just this clarity. Give us grace to fight each day, to preach the gospel to ourselves each day. Lord, give us grace to to act in with our kids, with our spouses, with our, our family, with our coworkers, our neighbors, just with this grace that comes from knowing the grace that you've given us. Lord, may we just revel in this grace so that our, our soul magnifies you and our spirit rejoices in you each moment as we just dwell in what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Have a good day.